Lit Service is brought to you by Writer's Clearinghouse. Writer's Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. Now here's the show. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we are fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. And this week, we are live at FanX. <laughs> yes. I'm Caitlin, and my favorite spell from Harry Potter is definitely Avada Kedavra, because I am not actually a Slytherin. It's just the best one. I think Caitlin's trying to out-edge me, and it's weirded me out a little bit. Um... I'm Cameron, and I would have to go with my favorite spell as Apparition, because it sounds so just dang useful, and also because the only bat-related spell I could find involves flying boogers. (laughs) I'm Sarah B. Larson, and my favorite spell is Expecto Patronus, because I would love to be able to scare away all the scary things with a glowing animal. (laughs) Like Caitlin. (laughs) Yeah. I'm I'm Catherine Purdy, and my favorite Harry Potter spell is Accio. I could use it all the time while I'm just being lazy in my bed writing Accio Diet Coke, (laughs) Accio Babysitter for my child, (laughs) Accio Dog Walker. I don't know. The list goes on. Accio Finished Manuscript. Yes. Yes. Accio Brain Power. Accio New York Times Bestseller. Oh, wait, you already are. <laughs> that brings us to our introduction. I'm Caitlin Sangster. I wrote the Last Star Burning series. I'm Cameron Harris, and I'm mostly here because I follow her around. Um, also, though, I'm a, a chatbot designer by trade, so I write a lot of, I guess what you might call, technical writing in a professional setting. But I also like know a lot of stuff, so Caitlin keeps me around. Um, I'm Sarah B. Larson, like I said. I wrote the Defy Trilogy and Dark Breaks the Dawn Duology. And my newest book, Sisters of Shadow and Light, comes out November 5th. I am Catherine Purdy. Um, I'm the author of the Burning Glass Trilogy. And thanks, my one fan. I heard a little, (laughs) (laughs) And um, I have a new YA fantasy coming out March 10th. It's called Bone Crier's Moon. Yeah, that's me. Awesome. So before we start, just for people who are walking in because they heard the word magic and don't want magic don't know what magic systems are, what is a magic system? Cameron, I'm looking at you. Cameron, take it away. <laughs> okay, sure, fine. Um, so I would define a magic system as, I'm going to take it a little broader, maybe than most people would. I would just kind of define it as the rules by which the setting in your book works, whether that's advanced technology, whether that's technology of now, whether that's Harry Potter, Latin, and wooden sticks. So I think for the purposes of, of this discussion, I would like to call a magic system the rules by which your setting works. Otherwise, your readers are going to get mad. I will go with that. That's good. So we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between a hard magic system and a soft magic system. Some people get mad when you call a soft magic system a soft magic system because they feel like it's like degrading somehow. I don't know. It sounds so soft and I feel like flimsy. It sounds pathetic. Yeah. So maybe we should say like either a non-system or like a flighty whatever you want system. I don't know. <laughs> that doesn't sound better, does it? It makes you sound bad. <laughs> a flighty whatever you want system. Okay, so but w- the difference between those two things is like any Sanderson book. Who's read Sanderson? 
Yeah. It's basically the entire room for you guys who aren't. Yeah. <laughs> so Brandon Sanderson is way into rules. He, like, wrote the magic system rules. We're going to talk about him a little bit. But then also things like The Last Airbender, because we know exactly how magic works. It doesn't, like do random stuff ever. We always know, like, there are the four different kinds of magic. The only little aberration is the avatar who can do all four. And then if you go to things like Harry Potter, it gets a little bit fuzzier. We know that you need a wand to do magic. Sometimes. Sometimes. But you also can, like, do it without talking sometimes. That's introduced in, like, the fifth book. And, like, there's just random things that get thrown in. There's not a set system. I'm sure that when J.K. Rowling wrote it, she was like, this is how magic works. But she doesn't necessarily share all of it with us because it's not necessarily relevant when you read a, a sanderson book the magic system like is the book there's always like an explanation it's like this is exactly how the magic system works and i am an expert or like in the stormlight Ar- archive they spend a whole lot of time trying to figure out what the magic system is so they can use magic but if you move over to harry potter magic is cool but it's not the point how it works is not the point yeah how it works is not the point <laughs> or if you've ever read the girl who drank the moon it never explains anything it's just kind of like la da she was born and she drank moon milk something and she's magical and she does crazy stuff and it's never explained really anything about it it's cool that and we get to see it yeah and and i any of them are fine there's not like they all are great books there's not like a right or wrong as long as you do each one well yeah. Which I think is, is kind of the point of what we're talking about here, right? Because something magic system, something when to not use them. Don't you love that is... he doesn't know what panel he's on? Um, <laughs> that's, I don't see how that's relevant. Um, but, the point, but the point I'm trying to make, though, is this is maybe one of those points you want to address, is yeah. there is a, there's a reasons to use a super detailed magic system, and there are reasons to not use one. And I think those are very important reasons to understand as a writer. Absolutely. What are some basic rules that need to go with any kind of magic? Consistency. Yes. That don't was, break your rules. Yes. Don't break your rules. Well, like, what are I rules break that my rules. <laughs> but you have to set it up that the rules can, or that the, the magic has to expand, especially when you're writing a series. Mm-hmm. The magic has to expand. Everything has to expand in the second and third book. So I, I shouldn't have said it. it's breaking the rules, but your, your world needs to get bigger. You need to add more characters. The magic needs to expand. If it's not a magic system that can expand, then maybe you should write one book and not a series. That's just my okay. two bits about a series. So how do you go about making it bigger without having it become too big for the reader to understand? Well, I think that you have to know as the author where it's going the whole time, and then you have to pick and choose when you expose or reveal the different elements or the expansion. And so in like Katie's books, or in my books, which I think are somewhat similar in how we create our magic systems. It's not that we don't know what our magic can do. It's that we wait to reveal some of it because we want to expand our world and our plot. So it's not that you just are like all of a sudden deciding, oh, I want this to happen, so now I'm going to make my magic do this and then try and make it work. You have to know from the beginning what your rules are and what the expansion is so that you can set it up so that it is believable, so that the the trail markers are there so that your reader isn't blindsided by it. They need to be able to look back and say, oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think one of the really important things to keep in mind is, especially when you're writing a book where what the magic can do is part of the mystery, is that there is a difference between what the people in your world think the magic can do and what you as the author have already figured out the magic can do. I think an excellent example of that would be Sanderson's Mistborn, where at the very start, I can't remember what the initial number of medals are, but there's this many medals and they do this many things. Sanderson knew from the start that there were more medals that did more things, and there's foreshadowing all over the place to say, 
there's more, we just don't know what it is. So I think having elements like that, that's part of the key of having magic A morph into magic A B without it feeling like you're cheating. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a Sanderson law associated with widening your magic system, and he says go deeper, not wider. So you don't start with like water magic and then be like, actually, you can also control storms, and you can also do wind magic. You don't add a bunch of stuff in. You go deeper into what your magic can do rather than trying to add in extra, if that makes if sense. If you want to do another concrete okay. example using Mistborn, you have um, Allomancy and you have... It's Alamancy <laughs> and it's okay. they know. Thank you very much they for know. saving my Just bacon. Ask the anyway, so those are the two primary magic systems for those who don't know about the book. And it takes a while for us to get most of the nuts and bolts for both of those. And then what Sanderson does, which I think is great in the following series, is he explores well what happens when those two interact with each other. So he doesn't add, there's no, there's no new branch of magic. There's just, well, what happens if you happen to be able to use both at the same time? And I think that's super cool. Okay, so back to basic rules of any magic system. Some that I wanted to get into is that magic systems are cool when you find out that people can, you know, channel water or move air or whatever. But what's really a lot more interesting, and this is also another Sanderson rule, is that the limits are what make it interesting. How people get around those limits what they can and can't do. Well, there has to be a limit and there has to be a cost, I feel. It can't be unlimited and it can't just have no consequences. Otherwise, you have no plot. I really like Jennifer Nielsen said yesterday that if you have a magic, a world where you can do anything, so if somebody is like falling off of a cliff and all they have to do is snap their fingers and it'll save their life and nothing happens, that's not interesting. But if you have somebody who's falling off a cliff and they can snap their fingers and save their life, but somebody they love will die, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to have a cost. You have to have limitations also to what your magic can do. Because if it's unlimited, then what's the point? Mm -hmm. Uh, In a large scale, books are all about conflict. So if you have no conflict, you have no plot. If you have no conflict, there's nothing for your characters to grow from. If your magic can just solve everything, then you don't have any conflict and you don't have a book. I think a really interesting question to ask yourself when you're writing a magic system is why do the people with magic rule the world or why don't they? Like, if you have magic, if you have a leg up on everybody else, then why aren't those people ruling the world? In stories, because there are stories where they do. In which they do. Sure. Kind of, you've written a story like that, in which the magical people govern and it's the girl, I mean, this the hollow book, right? Can we talk about books that we wrote that weren't published? Well, Dark Breaks the Dawn works too, because... Yeah. The king yeah. and queen are the conduit for the magic, and mm-hmm. they control it. So yeah, so and they that they are the rulers because they are the conduits, and so that's the only way their people have the magic, and they're the ones that there's two kingdoms for light and dark, but it's more it's not like good and evil. It's more like summer versus winter, and they need both of them for the world to survive. And so maybe we can talk about like why in general that's a hard thing to do, and how she pulled it off. Sure. Well, if I had to guess from my own experiences, I'm going to, I'm going to yeah, yeah. ask you to verify what I'm saying. Okay. Um, <laughs> when you have someone who's ruling a country instead of just like a hidden faction, that affects everything. There's ripples that's going to affect the entire country, and that's a lot to deal with. And how do you, how do you deal with that? I don't want to toot my own horn. Katie, how do I deal with that? <laughs> how do I deal with that? There, there is an opposite power. So the opposite, like the, the enemy has the same or equal type of power. I mean, it's like, it's kind of like Star Wars to a certain extent, even though that's sci-fi. I guess it's a fantasy though. Star Wars is kind of sci-fi yes, fantasy Star space Wars opera is totally, thing. yeah, magic yeah, in there. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, but you've got like the light side and the dark side and they're, 
to, to a large degree, empower, like the emperor's empower. Which Star Wars are we talking about? I don't know. Yeah, but, um, <laughs> Well, okay, so to clarify your question, you're saying how does it work that they are the ones that control? Well, what I'm saying is, is, generally speaking, the people who are in power in a society have the largest effect on that society. And when you're looking at, like, the realistic ramifications of having magic, when the people in charge have the magic, most of the time that would change a lot about a society, yeah. make it not look like a real-world counterpart. Yeah. Um, so I guess you could compare like the Defy series to the Dark Breaks the Dawn series. Because in the Defy series, the people with magic are kind of in hiding and they've been killed. And so, you know, they don't want to have people know they have magic. And so it's kind of a problem that the prince does. And in Dark Breaks the Dawn, the rulers are the ones that are the conduit for the power that their world needs to survive. And so it is very different worlds because you have the people hiding over here, but they're able to influence what happens in the world. And these people are out in the open and people are trying to take their power because they know it exists. They want the power. They want to rule the world like the other people. So it is a very different construct of how those worlds work. And it's really fun to explore both sides of that. It was fun to write very different worlds that way that one, they were in power and one, they were trying to hide. Yeah. And in, in Bone Crier's Moon, my new series coming out, there is a matriarchal society of women who ferry the dead. And they largely keep the balance of the world. So in their minds, they're almost like the rulers of the world, but hardly anybody knows about them. They're this little group of women that live in this like ruined castle. And they, and they are so Heidi. cool, <laughs> by the way. They get power from animals and with bones, and it's some bone magic. And it's so awesome, <laughs> yeah. and you guys need to buy this book. So, but like, you know, but like the people in... <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. <laughs> We're gonna... um, the people in power, before, like, that, that think they're in power really don't know about these people, mm-hmm. at least in the beginning. of. So it needs to be something that you consider before you start writing a story. If you are a writer, you need to think, who is in power and why? And as a result, like, how does it change the society and how magic is used? If you're in hiding, there needs to be a big reason why you're in hiding if you have magic. Because if you have magic, that means you can do stuff to other people that they can't do back. And so people aren't going to trust you. Yeah. yeah. Or, I mean, how did you become on the bottom level? Like, why aren't you ruling? There should be a reason for that, right? Yeah. Unless it's magic that has consequences that make it so people don't want to use it. Or you just have to think through all of those iterations. If my characters who have magic are not in the upper class or people in charge, how did they get there if they have magic? Yeah. It's like any commodity that you'd want. Any Like if another country had oil, then wars happen. You know what I mean? And so you just have to think of all the political and societal ramifications, however you do it. Or you could think about it in terms of money. I mean, the trust fund kid, they're not the person who's like, I couldn't take, you know, normal math classes because my school didn't have them. You know, like, if you have money in our society, it's almost like magic. And so if the people with money are in hiding, like, there's a reason for that. Anyway, let's move on. Any other um, basic rules that we should talk about if you are creating a magic system? Mine, I don't know if this gets into what we talk about later on, but mine tend to be, I write really character-driven fantasy, so my magic tends to evolve from, like, Especially in Burning Glass, that's essentially a magic system built around empaths. And these empaths, the, the empire wants this ability because they use them as guardians um, to like suss out if like, uh, like a threat, if an assassin's coming. The, these women aren't the fighters, but they're the people that could say danger's coming. And so the empire owns them 
But anyway, I, I developed it just basically my idea in the first place was this, this book came out of the idea of one, one person having empathic abilities and having them as a weakness, almost like really bad anxiety. And so I developed a magic system almost out of her weakness and then from there built the magic system around it in the world. And everything, I think, the way I write, should be a reflection of your character, the fantasy setting, the magic system. I think your main character, whether you start with building your magic system first before you write or developing your character, they need to be strongly interwoven to make a really high-stakes high plot, a high concept story, so that it's meaningful, the consequences of magic, it's meaningful to them on a personal level. Anyway, so, but I, and I, I started with that empathic ability and then went from there and like, she's almost like an abused character because she's always feeling other people's feelings to getting to the point where she can start to push that on other people and change their, and this is kind of slightly spoilery and, and moving on into the series, but she develops power where she can manipulate somebody else's emotions. But it's still, so that's like kind of a way of digging deeper, like we talked about, without necessarily breaking the rules and expanding them. You're, she's still working with emotion, but it's, instead of it all getting um, driven towards her, she's can she can take what she's feeling and push it on someone else. Yeah, that's a so, classic example of what Cameron was saying, where she has powers that the author knew about, but she did yeah. not know about at the beginning of the book. Yeah. And so she grew into them. I mean, any character arc, especially with magic or anything else, you want to see growth, because it's boring when people stay the same. If I can springboard off that a little bit, earlier we had that question of how do you decide how hard versus soft a magic system you want to go with? And I think a guiding star for that, also talking about more rules for developing your magic system, is in my mind, the detail that you need to have figured out is directly linked to the plot of the book and the character who's experiencing it. So on maybe the far end of the spectrum, we can take Frodo and Sam from Lord of the Rings where they don't directly use the magic ever, except for like the one ring. And you'll note that the one ring, at least in regard to hobbits, is extremely well-defined. What happens when you put it on? You turn invisible and the Dark Lord knows where you are. Every time, that's what happens. Conversely, we have like all the other magic, you know, Gandalf does, Sauron does, whatever. That is not well-defined, and it's okay that it's not well-defined because the protagonists, at least in the case of Frodo and Sam, never use it to solve their problems. It's not something that, over the course of the book, they would learn anyway. So it's okay that it's not Mm well-defined. So maybe that's a good jumping-off point to talk about when you do not need a magic system. What kind of stories do not need magic systems? That's kind of what you just said. It needs boring stories. (laughs) I like fantasy. (laughs) I'm just kidding. I don't mean no magic. I just just mean defined magic system. (laughs) So you're saying like more of a soft system? If if you want to read like Katie's in my books as opposed to Brandon Sanderson's books, is that what you're saying? (laughs) Just kidding. We love all the books. We do. They're just different. So you just have to decide what kind of a book you're trying to write and what you're trying to accomplish with your magic. And, and I think it also depends on what kind of magic you're using. If you have a super detailed, involved magic system that you've created, then you're going to need to create a lot of rules and constructs for it and have it be more of a hard system. But if it's more like character-driven and emotion-driven and stuff, then that's going to be able to be more of a soft system. And mm-hmm. 
So really, just like you were saying, it comes down to the book that you're writing and who your protagonist is and whether they have the magic or not and whether they need it to succeed or whether they're trying to overcome it to succeed. And it all comes down to asking yourself questions. What does this magic accomplish? Why do I need this magic in my book? Am I trying to overcome the magic to succeed or am I using the magic to succeed? And as you ask yourself these questions, then you can start to put together how big or small or how hard or soft or how expansive or constricted the system will be. And if you don't even need a system and it can just be some drinking moon juice book. Yeah. <laughs> I would also Which venture to, to say that like, so I'm, not, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not sure if it, this rule, it's not a rule if, but I think that the more point of views you have in the story, those books tend to lend themselves to harder magic systems where Burning Glass is a story from one character's point of view over three books. So it has to be very personal, and it has to mostly just affect her. She then affects the world, but it's not like, you know, some of the big tomes where there's so many different points of view per chapter, and you have to have really tight rules. You don't have to, but it just lends itself more to that for a more epic, larger story that everyone has to fit into and abide by the same rules. One example that I think is really fascinating is Lainey Taylor's books. Has anybody read Lainey Taylor? I love her. Isn't she amazing? And that you start off with the one series, and it's about, like, angels and demons, and there's all... I mean, it is, like, the coolest magic. So her first book is Daughter of... Daughter of Smoke Smoke and Bone. Bone. Yeah. And then you get over into Strange the Dreamer, and it's a totally different magic system and thing going on, and then... Spoiler alert, plug your ears if you don't want to be spoiled, but you find out that these worlds are connected, and it is so cool. And and that was a really neat way to just keep having different magic systems, but then they all end up affecting each other, and it's just so brilliant. Mm -hmm. I think something interesting about Lainey Taylor is that she does not write intricate... I mean, there are rules to her magic systems, but they're relatively simple. It's not a Sanderson, like, if you breathe, this happens. If you do this, this happens. And you have to memorize a bunch of stuff in order to understand what's going on in the book. Lainey Taylor writes a very simple magic system, but it's consistent throughout. So when you get to that reveal, you're like, things are connected here. You're like, I can totally see that happening mm-hmm. because it's very simple. Yeah, and, but yeah. it's really effective and powerful. Yeah. I have a favorite example as far as, because, like, listening to us, a lot of what we're saying, I wouldn't hold it against you if you thought, like, the more magic you have, the more rules you have to have. Because that's not true. It all goes back to like what we've been saying to how the magic interacts with the plot. So I'm going to use the first Harry Potter book. I think a lot of people are familiar with that. You know, magic is freaking everywhere in those books, right? And there's almost no rules. Well, how do you get away with that? I think the end of the first book is a great case study in that because you look at what they go through to get to the sorcerers, philosophers, depends on what continent you're on, Stone. Um, and the actual <laughs> challenges have there almost be a nothing. There's for that stone. The full, I don't know, the sorcerer, philosophers, stone. <laughs> So there's a series. Ha, ha, ha. Thank you. So there's a series of challenges at the end of the book that the characters have to go through, and if you notice, they solve almost none of them by waving their wand, right? How do they get past Fluffy? Well, they previously learned that all you need to do is play some music to get past them. They have to set the plants on fire, but it's previously established that using a wand to set fire is very, very doable. Um, you have catching a key on a broom. We've already seen broomsticks everywhere. We've seen flying stuff. This is this is something we understand, even if we don't understand almost anything else. You have the chessboard. Um, even if you're not familiar with 
giant animated chess pieces, most people know the rules of chess anyway. And so, well, and also we've seen wizard chess earlier in the book. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So all of the stuff that ends up really, really mattering at the end of the book is not only foreshadowed, but easy to understand and has rules. Mm-hmm. So this is actually another Sanderson law. We keep bringing him up because he's like the king of magic systems, right? He says, the author's ability to resolve conflicts in a satisfying way with magic is directly proportional to how the reader understands the magic. So you can't pull something out at the end of the book and be like, ta-da, the end, the eagles came and saved them, except that you can't do that if you're Jared or Tolkien. Um, <laughs> but everybody complains about it, right? It's great, because he managed to pull it off. But generally speaking, you can't do that and have readers be like, ha-ha, I was so excited about not knowing what was going on at the end there. Because at the end of a book, or the end of a movie, or anything else, you want to understand what's going on, and you want to understand why. You like, can't do it now. Like, authors could get away with things... You could get away with anything. ...a long time ago. But if you want to get published now, you can't have eagles come fly in all of a sudden and be like, huzzah! And be like, okay, why did we not just do that from the start? That how it should have ended? Has anybody seen that? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, let's move on a little bit. Real quick, if I could. They could have at least sang an eagle song in the woods while they were frolicking along. Yeah. Some eagle poems. This maybe is a giant caveat that maybe we should have started with. There's a reason that our tagline is um, fans of fiction and purveyors of dodging writing advice. It's the second part that's actually really important because if you weren't aware that in writing there are rules, but they're really more like guidelines. You can break. There's a way to break any rule and get away with it. It's just that generally it's harder to do it that way. So generally, you can listen to us if you want, but if you find a better way, then awesome. We're here to help, but if you don't find us helpful, then go away. Um. (laughs) And the people that get away with breaking the rules and, like, make it work, those are, like, the breakthrough novels, right? So for sure you can make it work go for it so generally speaking don't listen to anything we're saying and break all the rules because then you will write a bestseller right exactly (laughs) no it's really good to know all the rules really well and to know how you can break them you have to know all the rules before you can go against them yeah you can't just you can't just do it unwittingly Uh you have to be very knowingly and very carefully breaking the rules if you want to succeed at it otherwise it will be not what you want to accomplish exactly Okay, so we actually need to move on to the second portion of our podcast, which is where we do a first chapter critique for an aspiring author. Any of you who are authors, you can submit your work to us, and we will critique it for you. If any of you are in the query trenches, or any of you guys writers who are trying to break into publishing, it sucks, guys. It's the worst. So, and a lot of times... Enjoy the time when you don't have deadlines, and you can just dream and explore at your own leisurely pace. So often you get... If you're querying an agent, they either don't respond at all, and that's your rejection letter, or you get a rejection letter that says, this is not for me. We want to help people who are in that querying stage and say, these are reasons that an agent or an editor might be getting hang- the hung up on your chapter and not wanting to read more. So we have a chapter that was submitted by a listener. Um, the summary, really quick, is an assassin breaks into a cursed castle to kill the evil beast of Terramore which I think is the best name ever. So what are some things we liked about this chapter? Opening lines, Grabby. Yeah, the next time I see Ash, I'm going to skin him alive. Isn't that great? Yeah, I loved that first line. That really grabs your attention. And you really only have one page to grab an agent. Mm -hmm. That's what most of them will say is, like, one page. Even the first line sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I thought the author, um, this main character... At least in this chapter, it looks like there's more than one point of view because the chapter is titled Derek, his yeah. name. But he's got really great voice. I was really into, especially when he's writing in scene. By that, I mean, like, 
what's actually happening right now and not just thinking in his head. Um, he's a really cool, savvy assassin. I don't know much about him yet, like what's at stake for him or things like that. But um, the likability factor is starting to come in for me just because he's really talented. Like, you know, there's all these reasons why we like a main character. Sometimes we pity them, we were rooting for them, things like that. This one solely so far is just because it's almost like a James Bond thing, like this guy has skills. That's all I know so far, but it's still enough to pull me through. And I felt like there was a lot of really cool descriptions. I felt like I really liked a lot of what I'm trying to like scan through to find a sentence, but that's probably going to take too long. But anyway, I just, I felt like there was a lot of really nice imagery. I have some written down if you want me to say some of them, because I I thought the same thing. So Katie underlined this one. It was evergreens dusted in white mingled with the naked bones of aspen groves, a never-changing parchment sky that locked the sun behind closed doors. So there is really cool imagery and description in the chapter. There's some really nice witty ones, too. Like he says, yeah. there are two exits being blocked, a heart attack eagerly awaiting, or um, Dusk and I had formed an agreement over time. Um, there are castle spires that are clawing through the clouds for a chance to see the sun. There's some really beautiful imagery and just witty ways of putting things. Um, and I'm all for evil ice queens and slaying scary ice beasts. It's a really cool setup for a story. Do we have any other things? Actually, you didn't say anything yet, Cameron. You have to say that's something nice. That's not true. I opened with the opening line. Was oh, that's great. true. Sorry. <laughs> he did... Um, do a, is it a boy, the author? I have no idea. Oh, I just am like thinking it's a boy because the main character's a boy. How non-cool of me. It could be a girl and it could be anyone. All right. Um, but I thought that they really spent a long time developing this world. A little, there's a lot of it, <laughs> maybe too much of it in this chapter, but you can tell it's a, that's easy to fix though. You can tell that he's, Derek, I'm going to, have to pretend that the author is. It's a biography. Derek. Derek. Um, <laughs> he's been a long the author. <laughs> if I don't have author information, I'm just going to assume that this person wrote their own biography. They, yeah, they, they know a lot. They've spent a long time developing this world. Mm-hmm. So. so maybe we should move on to things that might need a second look. So my biggest problem with the submission is that I felt like it was overwritten. There is some beautiful imagery and some really fun witticisms coming from the character, but there was too much. This is supposed to be a fast-paced action. I'm about to slay a beast, and I'm evading guards, and I'm breaking into this really heavily protected castle, but half the time we spend with him, like, walking and, like, climbing up stuff, and he's thinking really hard about it the whole time, so it just mm-hmm. doesn't move very fast. I agree. I, I, that was my caveat with it, is that there is beautiful imagery and description, but there's way too much of it, and mm-hmm. then it turns into, like, purple prose, even, yeah. if you get too much. You want to just pick your favorite one or two lines, especially in an action scene. This is supposed to be an action scene, and you want to have action happening in your first chapter. You do not want to be dwelling on recapping things. And I agree that there was a lot of, like you can tell there's a lot of world building, but there's too much. Mm -hmm. There's too many names thrown in way too fast, too many cities, too many things that I'm just like, wait, what? And you, if you're, as a reader, especially as an agent or an editor, are like having to go back up, like only four paragraphs in to try and re-figure out like, wait, what city and what this, then you're going to lose them. Yeah. You have to introduce it 
slowly and authentically, like, to what this person would actually be thinking if they actually lived there. Like, if I'm from Utah and I'm in Salt Lake, I'm not going to be sitting there thinking, I am in Salt Lake City, which is the main capital of Utah, which is this street, and I, but I come from the suburb of Riverton, and da 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 Like, you just don't think that way because you live there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing that that threw me um, for the most part when he's in the action I enjoyed um the voice sometimes I question the voice because we don't know enough about this character yet he, we just know that he's an assassin and he's really skilled but when he's describing things very poetically in order to justify for me I write deep point of view so if if this is from Derek's point of view and he's also writing first person then is Derek a poet and an assassin to be talking like that? I had that exact You know what I mean? Like you have to, if you're going to write really beautiful, like in Bonecrier's Moon, I have three points of view. I have one character that's really haughty and passionate and she can, when I write her, I can get away with a little bit more flowery descriptions and like really passionate descriptions. And then I have, I have a thief and a guy set on revenge in one of my other chapters and he just wants revenge and he barely even has metaphors Mm -hmm. because he doesn't think that he's just very direct. And he has shorter sentences. That's these. A lot of these are really long sentences too. And in action scenes, if you something to pick up the pace as well is more white space. This was like this was ten pages, but it was like thirty three hundred words, which is a lot of words for ten pages. And he needs more white space and shorter sentences. That helps the pace. A I lot. have that exact thought. I'm like, is this like? a very sad assassin who doesn't like his job and wants to be a minstrel because there's so many music analogies and poetry and stuff. The whole time I was like, this guy doesn't really want to be killing the beast. And it's good writing, but it's, it's it's the author showing through and, and, and maybe, maybe it's the assassin, but we don't know enough enough about the assassin for us, for it to uh, be believable. That kind of leads into what what I would call maybe my largest um, concern with the piece is that for me there was not very much tension throughout the entire thing. We have this guy sneaking up on this town, which is initially described as deserted. So I'm like, okay, well it's spooky, but there's no there's no immediate threat. And then we learn, okay, there's human guards all over the place, which conflicted in my mind with deserted, but that's a separate issue. And we get to that point, and he thinks the assassin thinks, well, if I was allowed to use violence, I would just kill him all and be done with it. Well, that builds a lot of competence for the character. In my mind, all attention in the piece just died at that moment. Because I'm like, okay, if this is if he can literally just kill everyone in this castle, then why aren't we fast forwarding to after he's already done the job? If it, if there's no chance of failure, he is. He says he's not. You know, there's there's there's, there's a justification there that. He's been instructed not to use violence, and that's going to make it a whole lot harder. Except he's an assassin, so I don't believe that if anything goes wrong, he won't resort to violence. And I end up being right. Something goes wrong, and he just immediately flies off the handle and starts killing people. So, <laughs> the main so the main thing I think about this is that he, the author started the story in the wrong place. So aspiring writers were often told start start with the action because that's going to hook the reader right, and. Yes, you should always, for the most part, I think, start with action. But action doesn't necessarily mean action fighting scene. It just means something actively happen, happening. I've always told people to start on the day that's different. Yeah. You start on the day so, that's different than when the change that happens that is the inciting event. For so he has, he, he describes all this really fascinating stuff about the world, but they're in really huge chunks, which we can sometimes call like an info dump. But 
in and of itself, they're fascinating things, but they, they just stop the scene because they're, there's just a bunch of information. Like we've got him doing active things, then these big chunks of information. That information would be so interesting for me. He's got a, he's got a world where like you cross one river and it's winter. You cross this mountain and it's summer kind of a world. And he just explains it all, but how much more effective would it be for us to actually be with him as he crosses that border and sees the change for himself? So, so I think, yeah, through, he needs to start a little sooner and to set up what's, what's at stake for the character. Cause I don't even know. He doesn't even seem very interested in this assassin job except for he's getting paid, yeah. which, but well, I just think we need to know what's at stake for him to, that will help the tension. And too. that first line was so great, but then I felt like we didn't fulfill the promise of that first line until way too late. And I feel like probably for a lot of you guys, you haven't read this chapter, so you can actually, you can go onto our website and it'll be posted with all of our notes. Yes. Yeah, so you, you can, can you can understand more what we're talking about by reading it. But the takeaway I feel like as you guys sitting here listening to us, even though you haven't read the chapter is to think about your own writing and think through like, okay, they're sitting here talking about the fact that there's these beautiful descriptions but there were too many of them, and it didn't fit the scene that they were in or the character that we've had set up. That if I'm writing a book about an assassin, why would he be thinking in these very long, drawn-out descriptions of cities? And, and just try and take away like the principles that we're talking about, even though you don't necessarily know the specifics of this actual chapter yet, unless you read it before you came. So that you can think about your own writing and think about, okay, what am I? What the things that they're talking about? Do I have stuff like that in my book that I need to work on? Awesome. Um, we actually need to wind things down. Sorry, Cameron. I want to thank Sarah and Catherine for coming on the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you. That's it for our show today. Don't forget, you can listen to Lit Service wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us ratings and reviews, and share with your writer friends. If you want to ask us questions, tell us we are awesome, or whine about how your writing is going, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service, or on Facebook and Instagram as at Lit Service Podcast, or you can email us at litservicepodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to say hi to our new intern, Sarah Doyle, on social media. Many thanks go to her already. Lit Service is brought to you by Writers Clearinghouse. Writers Clearinghouse empowers authors and agents by providing low-cost, professional evaluations of entire manuscripts that tell you exactly where your manuscript stands and what you can do to improve it. To learn more, visit www.writersch.com. Listeners of Lit Service will receive 20% off an evaluation by using the code LITSERVICE20 at purchase. For Lit Service, thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.